If you'd please take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 2. Having just walked through a series of baptisms, I thought it would be helpful this morning to look at biblical conversion and what exactly the New Testament teaches us about how one is saved and the role in that of even baptism. So as we look in Acts chapter 2, this is the first sermon for the New Testament church. Up until this point, you know, Christ had been preaching in the Gospels, and the apostles were sent out as preachers of the kingdom. But this is the first time on the other side of the resurrection and in the establishment of the church that the Word of God is being preached that we know of. I think especially with the onset of the Holy Spirit at this event, that we know that this was the first time the church as an organized group of people called the church, was ever gathered or heard the preaching of God's word. And so if you're thinking through what the New Testament is doing then as, as kind of the genesis moment of the church in which God establishes and begins it, he is laying for all of us the trajectory of what true church and conversion work looks like. And so when you look in Acts chapter 2, we begin with the controversial element of the speaking in tongues. So I know some of you would probably appreciate a sermon on that this morning. We're not going to speak to the issue of tongues. But if you look in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour, about 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he begins to explain to them what God is doing in this momentous point in history as God is beginning the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit founded on the work of Jesus Christ. So what the apostle's doing there is he says, hey, they're not drunk. He's referring to the issue of them speaking in tongues, saying, hey, they're all speaking in foreign languages, This isn't a matter of inebriation. They know what they're speaking. And this is actually consistent with God's revelation. The test of the practice of the church isn't what we feel, because right now the Jewish people are feeling this is weird. But it's what God's truth says. And so the apostle Peter begins to preach. And in verses 17 all the way down through verse 36, the apostle's sermon is recorded for for us. In verse 37 through verse 41 will be our focus this morning. Look down with me at Scripture. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Our nine people added today is a drop of the bucket to 3,000. That had to be some fast work. I was actually thinking through that. I'm like, wow, they, I mean, there wasn't a lot that they could have said to get 3,000 done in a day. But when you look at this, there's actually laid out for us, and I would suggest to you six essentials in the biblical pattern of conversion. 
Six essentials. And the last, uh, last one speaks to the work of God in fulfilling his promises, but some of these are essentials that we should be engaged in as a church. Some are essentials in the sense that they are the righteous responses of God's work in the individual as he saves them. But I think it's essential for us to grab a hold of this, lest we twist the gospel and give people false assurance. And churches have done this throughout the ages by either addition or neglect, the gospel is twisted. And true conversion is something that is, is pretended. So for instance, in certain churches, there's acts or rituals that are added to the gospel that cannot save. In fact, they divert saving faith from Jesus Christ to our own efforts. Or likewise, we can leave out essential elements of the gospel and biblical responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thereby we can gut conversion of the supernatural work of God that is required in order for someone to truly get saved. And so we may have someone who merely gives intellectual affirmation. We heard that actually several times this morning. If I were to use the, my, my son's last testimony given, he knew about Jesus Christ. He had grown up in the home, but it wasn't until God worked in him and brought about fear of judgment that it went from, I know about the facts, to these facts matter to me. And that's a significant development in the gospel that we dare not leave out. So I will, I will try to quickly go through uh, the six-point sermon that I have this morning. Some of you nervously laugh because, you know, a three-point sermon takes me about 50 minutes. So you're doing the calculation. Well, let's just start with this. Conversion requires the preaching of God's word. Conversion requires the preaching of God's word. Look down with me in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Okay, so when they heard this refers to the sermon just preached. The apostle Peter has given a three-point sermon. Ironically, maybe I should learn his lesson and stick with three. Um, let, let me quickly highlight for you. He's preaching Jesus Christ. He's not preaching uh, interesting, fascinating stories. This is no mere um, motivational speech. This is no modern TED Talk or ancient TED Talk that we have now uh, learned how to plagiarize in our modern churches and give everyone a little bit of juice for the day and send them on their way. This is the exaltation and the defense of the work of Jesus Christ. Look down with me. And again, in verse 14, Peter's standing, he lifts up his voice. Verse 16, now he begins to take scripture and exegete scripture. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now he's defending the work of the Holy Spirit and giving the gift of tongues. But his point is not, look, the Holy Spirit's giving the gift of tongues. His point is that Jesus Christ has brought about the gift of the Holy Spirit whereby they're speaking in tongues. Look down with me in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Now what he's, he's doing is appealing to the testimony of God as God affirms that Jesus is his agent and his messenger and thereby what Jesus claimed about himself is true. How would they know 
that Jesus is no poser, that Jesus is the authentic Messiah who's been the promised one who's come as God's lamb and sacrificial servant. Well, none other than God himself on the witness stand testifying that Jesus is all that he says and all he claims through the powerful miracles and witness in his preaching and the wonders that he does to give accreditation to his proclamation. In other words, how do you know Jesus is true? He healed the blind. He made the lame to walk. And that alone, coupled with his message, is not merely to be isolated from the one through whom he does the miracles, God the Father. So that, as Peter says, Jesus Christ was God's servant, proven by the Father's work through him. Now, that's not where his sermon ends, because that's just the first step. His logic builds then that Christ wasn't just God's servant, that Christ's death and suffering and resurrection was God's plan. So he continues on, because for the Jewish listener, the death of Christ on the cross was a scandal. It was proof that he wasn't God's agent. They had assumed that the Messiah was going to come in crowning kingly glory. Jesus Christ suffers in shame, ignominy, and death as he suffers as a sinner condemned in the Roman courts. But when we come to verse 29, again, through the exposition of Scripture in Psalm 16, that's the quotation that comes before this, Peter then concludes his exposition on the psalm by saying, Brothers, verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb and is with us to this day. His tomb is with us to this day, not David. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Now just pause for a second. In order for someone to be resurrected, they first have to be dead. So David's psalm requires the death of the Messiah to get to his resurrection. So the death of the Messiah was something the Old Testament made plain. So their theology that somehow sets aside Christ as a possible hope for redemption is actually an unbiblical theology. But based on the Old Testament itself, Christ had to die in order to be raised up. Coming back into our passage here in verse 31, he foresaw this resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. So you see, I've done this twice now. You are witnesses of the power of God through Jesus Christ that proves he is God's agent. Now we move forward, and having given an exposition of Psalm 16, he says the psalm requires both the death and resurrection of God's servant, and you are witnesses of this. And then he concludes his three-point sermon, having already suggested he was God's servant as proven by the miracles. This was God's plan, proven by the psalms, that Christ would die and be raised again. And finally, Christ through his resurrection and ascension, unleashes the Spirit, once again proving his messianic credentials. So look with me in verse 33. Being therefore exalted, we are all witnesses. 
right? Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so even during this age, Christ is at the right hand of the Father as the Father is bringing about the final subjection of all things to his plan. That's where Jesus Christ is presently. So then he appeals to the listeners in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So Peter's testimony, he is God's agent proven by the miracles. This was God's plan to have his agent die and be resurrected. And the final fulfillment and credibility of Christ is that he was raised by the power of God and has risen to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, and has now granted to us what John calls the comfort of the Holy Spirit, who will be with us and endow the church with gifts. These are the gifts that are unleashed on Pentecost and to this day penetrate God's people in the church so that you and I are gifted servants of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, this is the testimony. This is the person. In fact, um, unabashedly and boldly, he says, you've killed him through the hands of wicked men, right? You talk about a poignant sermon. So here's this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 37, now when they heard this. What has Peter just said? What did they just hear? They heard the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The epicenter of all the hope of all the men who want this secure confidence that salvation is theirs, forgiveness is theirs, and eternal life is theirs through him. He preaches Christ. And they're cut to the heart. So if the first essential ingredient of true conversion is the preaching of the gospel, you see the outworking of the Holy Spirit not merely in gifting, but in the work of conviction. Maybe you, you hear the idea of conviction uh, talked about like, man, there was a lot of conviction that person had. Or, you know, they said that with a lot of conviction. When referring to the scriptural idea of conviction, we're referring to that idea that the Holy Spirit convinces. So, for instance, in John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent as, as a helper who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That, that, that word convict there, maybe consider a courtroom. And like a prosecuting attorney, the Holy Spirit is proving to the jury what is true and right so that the jury of our heart knows without doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord. That his death as the sacrifice for sins to bring about forgiveness for sinners is true. And that it, not, it is not merely true but it is something that must be personally appropriated. That is, we must possess it and respond by faith towards God and repentance from sin. That's the convicting work of God's Spirit. You will never believe the gospel without the convicting pressure of the Holy Spirit telling you and preaching to you, this is true. This is good. This is right believe it. In fact, it is so clear in this text, they heard this, then they were what? Cut to the heart. One of the modern 
tragedies is churches who fail to preach Christ, who think that maybe by pushing and pressing and encouraging, somehow you will reform and get better. This is pure lunacy. The work of God's Spirit is to take the spiritual things of God's Word and press them into our souls, whereby we don't just accept them intellectually, but our whole person latches onto them because they are truth of truth. And this is God's Spirit at work, and even now, our prayer would be that me just repeating poorly Peter's great sermon, that you would hear of how good Christ is, how God preached through the miracles that he is his Christ for us, and hearing of the sweetness of Christ's life, death, and resurrection by the power of God, you might trust in God and his work through Jesus Christ to save you. And you will never do that if God's Holy Spirit is not the attorney in your heart telling you, this is true. This is true. Believe in him. Trust in him. Accept him. Conversion comes about as a result of preaching God's word. It requires the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that things that are in God's word must be spiritually discerned, therefore we must have the Holy Spirit. It says the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they must be, capital S, spiritually discerned. You cannot come to God with natural thinking. You must have the Spirit convincing you of the goodness and the glory and the sweetness of Christ. Listen, if you are unsure if Jesus is worth trusting, if you're unsure if God's word is true, I would challenge you to beg for God to convince you. Beg for God to open up your eyes that you might see Christ in truth. Beg for God to give your heart a heart that believes and trusts. Beg for God to have mercy on your soul. And as Peter says at the end of this, save yourself from this wicked generation. Because God's judgment is certainly coming on all those who are sons of disobedience. Verse 38, the third essential of conversion. They say, brothers, what shall we do? This seems to be a common refrain, by the way, from, from Luke if you were to read um, Luke chapter 3, Luke the Apostle writing Acts and Luke, if you were to go back to Luke chapter 3 in verses, uh, I think it's 8, 10, and 12, as he's preaching repentance, as, he, as he's giving the baptism of repentance, and he calls upon people to repent, they say, what should we do? And, and, and John the Baptist encourages them, do this. And then another group says, well, what should we do? And he says, do this. And then a third group says, well, what should we do? And he says, do this. And in similar fashion, after Peter preaches this gospel message, they say, what should we do? And Peter's answer, repent. The third ingredient essential for biblical conversion is repentance. Now, I think particularly to this audience, they already believed intellectually in God. They're generally Jewish. They're there at Pentecost because their, their, their worldview includes the God of the Old Testament. But they need to personally respond to Jesus Christ as Messiah. And they have yet to do so. 
And rather than just affirming God as every good Pharisee might do, he's challenging them to personally appropriate, that is to possess and respond rightly to the proclamation of the Messiah named Jesus. So what then is repentance particularly? Well, it's more than this, but it's at least a change in mind about who you are and who Christ is. It would include different New Testament themes like turning, which is some 18 times the right way to translate it in the New Testament. Uh, About 60 times it refers to a change of mind. It also refers to someone who feels deep remorse, sorrow, or mourns for something. And so if we're to kind of collect that packet of information about what the word can mean in the New Testament, it speaks to a deep change in mind and heart about who God is and what his program is. It speaks to a deep understanding, and I shouldn't say deep because what I mean is a sincere understanding, about sin and hopelessness without Christ. So that we could say something like this, that faith and its object, that is what it trusts in, is Christ And repentance is toward God. So that with the whole internal uh, element of our being, that is our, our thinking and our emotions and our decisions, we hold firmly to Christ and we abandon any hope outside of Christ. So that the believer's singular hope, his singular focus, is that God saves us through Christ. It is to speak of a denial of self. Isaiah says that we all have turned our own way. And like sheep, we do our thing. But God turns us to the shepherd of our souls, and we follow him, as John 10 says, that that we do what he calls us to do. We obey him where he calls us to obey. And, And this then is the test if you have salvation. Are you living a life of repentance? Well, no then you better turn to Christ from sin. And so the litmus test of genuine saving faith is not a momentary decision of acknowledging Christ is who he says he is, but it's a life lived in the embrace of Christ and the rejection of loving self. So when you choose to pursue your agenda, you are repenting of repentance. You've done a full 180. And then another. And now you're continuing on your path of sin. It would indicate you probably never had Christ at all. A biblical call for repentance is part and parcel of the gospel message. And it leads to the forgiveness of sins. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come. Okay, to blot out your sins is to remove them or to forgive them. Acts 5, 31 God has exalted Christ and set him at the right hand as leader and savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Acts 8.22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that possible, that if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. When you come down to Acts 26, Paul is before Agrippa and he is speaking of the call of Christ on his life. It was to give him the ministry that he might open their eyes that they might turn from darkness, that's repentance, turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is the outcome of a repentant, faith-filled heart. 
And let me just be clear to all of you, faith and repentance are not to be distinguished from one another so that you have faith on one side and maybe or maybe not repentance. To disentangle them like that will kill either one. Biblical faith is always repentant faith. And biblical repentance is always a believing repentance. You cannot disentangle them. And here he's pressing home the point that repentance is the, singularly, uh, the singular focus of his concern. He's not extricating faith. His whole sermon was about faith. It's about here's who Jesus Christ is. Believe him. Here's how God's attested to him. Believe in it. Here's where he's leading all those who hope in him to eternal life as he's the Lord and Christ. And he pours out his Holy Spirit. Trust in this work of God. So what do we do? Repent. And throughout the New Testament, oftentimes, one or the other or both will be used. Never, as you read the Bible, should you leave out the other. Because it's always assumed in the New Testament theology that these are together. I think the apostles assumed it. Okay, having said that, can I just call upon you to be repenters? I have no idea what the Lord is doing in your hearts. I have no idea what sins you've allowed to creep up like weeds in the garden of your life that always need to be prosecuted and eradicated. But it is, deep sins don't start as deep. Rarely does someone get into a life of of hard sin without a series of small choices to tolerate sin today. If this is the gospel you never stop living it. If you're allowing sin to have place in your heart, no matter how small or inconsequential it is, and you are someone who says you believe in Jesus Christ, then live out repentance. Turn from it and ask God to forgive you for that negligence. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, and you're hearing for the first time today that it can't just be merely intellectual knowledge and agreement, It must be a full-hearted commitment to the Lordship of Christ, turning from following your own way and loving yourself to loving God supremely and more than anything and following after Christ and abandoning all other hopes except Jesus. Then can you just simply in your chair while I'm speaking, talk to God in your mind and ask him to save you and repent of trusting in anything but Jesus Christ. Repent of loving yourself more than Jesus Repent of being someone who wants what you want more than wanting what Jesus wants and ask him to save you. God saves all who turn to him in repentance. He saves them all. Conversion results in forgiveness. There's a challenging phrase here in the Greek, and you see it in the English, it's a little bit confusing if you just read it carefully. If you didn't read it carefully, your theology probably overwrote the verse. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if you look at that, it sounds like he's saying, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. I will not bore you with the Greek understanding of the word ice. That's that preposition for there. But it's causal, so it's probably something like this is the best way. I do encourage you to write this in your Bible so that when you read it later, you'll remember It it should be interpreted something like this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, based on the forgiveness of sins. Or maybe you could say, because of the forgiveness of sins. 
because it's a causal preposition showing us that this is something based on something else or because of something else. So, so his point is this. Be baptized because your sins are forgiven. He doesn't mean be baptized to cause them to be forgiven, but because they already have or based on the fact that they are forgiven. I just read to you several verses in which you heard the apostles preach again and again, repent and be forgiven. Repent and be forgiven. And here you see that same linkage where he's saying repent and be baptized because you are forgiven. That is, you and I should be baptized. Peter commands it here for the church. And baptism is nothing to be ignored. Um, frankly, in our churches, and I mean this in the broadest sense possible, evangelical churches in this country that are genuinely gospel-preaching churches, often neglect the essential proclamation of baptism. That is, you and I should be baptized believers. I want you to hear clearly what's going on in this text as well as through Acts. What's the basis by which the command to be baptized is given here? Because you are forgiven. Now, I know you all just said saved, um, but, but if you think of forgiveness then, the assumption is a believer's baptism. That is, this person's already repented, and as established throughout the New Testament, repentance and faith are, are twins by which you cannot take one without killing the other. Okay, so that their repentance and faith are the prerequisite for baptism, a baptism that declares forgiveness of sins. Are you guys tracking? I think this is essential then, because as we baptize people, what do we require of them before we baptize them? That they express faith and repentance. We cannot see into the human heart, so we ask for the profession that is the verbal testimony that Jesus Christ is the one in whom they believe and that they have turned to God from following their own way. And that verbal profession leads us to, as a church, say, well, this is required then that the, the person who believes and has repented has been forgiven by God and the baptismal waters declare forgiveness. In fact, I think if you look at the ritual as John the Baptist does it, it's a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism that declares they have turned from sin and it preaches a cleansing from it or release from it. In fact, 1 Peter 3 says that it's a pledge of a good conscience. That is, I think probably something like a confession to, to live before God as someone with a clean conscience. So you are to do this because you're forgiven. It's a declaration of a release from sin, a cleansing from God. And can I just add, I think Romans 6 helps us strengthen how, pre, how, how, the, how the baptismal waters preach unification with Christ. If you guys turn to Romans 6, or if, if um, you'll just allow me to, to quote parts of it, he, he asks the question, should we continue in sin? He says, no, you're dead to sin. Well, how do you know you're dead to sin? And he turns to the baptismal waters as the illustration of the saving truth. You're so united with Christ that like as he was buried, you've been buried. Well, when did you get buried? He's not talking about playtime at the beach when your brothers and sisters buried you in the sand. He's talking about what? You've been buried with him by, you guys all tracking with me, by baptism. That is, just like Christ was buried in the grave, you've been buried in the baptismal waters so that just like he was raised by the glory of the Father, you also 
are raised to walk in new life. The baptismal waters preach not merely that we've been cleansed from sin, but that this is something that is so tied to the ministry and work of Christ that we have been laid in the grave with him and we've been resurrected to new life, just like he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. It preaches to the Christian the work of God. It is not a work we do for God's grace. It is a work that preaches grace we already received. As God has united us with the saving work of Christ. So, conversion, if we're going to go back up, conversion requires the preaching of the gospel. Conversion requires the conviction by the Holy Spirit. Conversion requires the response of faith and repentance. Conversion results in forgiveness. And conversion results in the gift of God's Spirit. Okay, so we're on point number five here if you're tracking. Okay, so this baptism that everyone is to receive in the name of Christ, and before we move on, let me just add this. To, to be baptized in the name of Christ presumes that you have become a follower of Christ and baptism declares it. And so, so you'll see that they're baptized into John the Baptist baptism and they're considered disciples in Acts 19, that is followers of John. So when you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you are now a follower of Oh boy, you got more work to do here. If you've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you're now a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, so these waters don't do anything, but through them we proclaim grace and ministry and commitments to Christ, right? Okay, so that's Lord willing been done by every person who can competently express their faith and who show fruits of it. But if you're not saved, you should not be baptized. Baptism will not save you because it's a proclamation of the salvation work Christ has done. And so I, I want to encourage all of you to be baptized because I want all of you to be saved and having trusted in Christ to, to show that in baptism. Um, I think until you're baptized... If you are old enough to express your faith, we should doubt your salvation until you are baptized. Because it is the declaration of affiliation with the saving work of Christ. And no child who does not have faith should be baptized because they have not repented and have not been granted the forgiveness of sins. Okay, point five. Now we'll get to the gift of God's Spirit. Look down with me again in verse 38. He, he speaks to forgiveness, verse 39. He'll speak to the promise. But this is a promise that all get, but it's the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this gift of the Holy Spirit is, is new work for the church. As in the Old Testament, the Spirit was active. He was working in people's lives so that they could understand and respond to the message of God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God sends a spirit to do a different work. And you'll see it on display in this text. They're all speaking in tongues. At least all the apostles are. So you have all of these men speaking languages that they've never studied. Never, they've never gone to Greek. Oh, not Greek grammar. That's what I would have done. They've never gone to grammar classes in these foreign languages. They've never studied in university to know how to speak all of these different dialects. And they get up on Pentecost and they preach 
in these foreign languages. And now as a defense, Peter has given this message of Christ. He tells them that this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, so you need to repent. And if you do, you also will be gifted by the Holy Spirit. Now, he didn't say you'll all speak in tongues. He said you'll all have the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what 1 Corinthians 12 says to us. That all of us have been baptized by one spirit into one body. That is the body of Christ. And by that one spirit, we've been gifted so that the outpouring of the spirit has been received by all believers of this age. To just slow that down for you all, you, if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and have been forgiven of your sins, you haven't been merely forgiven of your sins. You are now empowered by God's Holy Spirit to minister among the body of Christ, the church. So that everyone in this room is spiritually gifted if they're a believer. I know some of you are looking in the mirror and being like, have you met me? I don't think I'm very gifted. Well, I might agree with you that you're not very gifted, and if you knew me, you'd probably agree with that too. But that's not, it's not a question of abilities or talents or competency. It's a fact that God has bestowed on each one of us a gift so that we can minister to the people among us who are God's people. Some of us, that's competency and, and communication. Some people, that's a gift of generosity. Others, it's a gift of comfort and encouragement. Some, it's, it's, it's various ways in which the body's encouraged so that on a Sunday morning as the church gathers, those gifts and abilities are on display. Whether it's in a greeter meeting you at the gate who's had a miserable week but still pays attention to you, cares about you, and loves you for the sake of Christ calling you into his or her body. And they love you just for the sake that you're in their church. And they're able to divest themselves of their concerns for their own needs and anxieties and just care about you. And that's a gift. Some of you, you can't do that to save your life. And that's okay because that's how the body works is each one is gifted according to the Holy Spirit for the mutual edification of the whole church. And this is the promise. Look again at the end of verse 38. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for, look at this, all who are far off. He's preaching to a mostly Jewish-oriented group of people and he's saying this promise is not just for you, it's for whom? Your children after you. It's not, it's, this is not some sales technique. Hey, this is only going to last till tomorrow, so buy this car. Because I can't promise that this car will be on the lot tomorrow. It's like, hey, you know what? This promise is open-ended from God to all who believe. You, your children, and all those who aren't part of this assembly. That is, non-Jews, the Gentiles, and people who we would consider as Jews to be unclean. Everyone can receive the promise of the Holy Spirit without distinction. Everyone can. Now, here's the promise of God. You, 2,000 years later, hearing the message of Jesus Christ, can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's no exclusion clauses at all. Just repent and trust in Jesus. That's amazing. You'll say, well, who's the Holy Spirit and what does he do for me? Huh, I'm glad you asked. Have you looked at the New Testament and how sweet and good it is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling with you? He presses you to repent of sin. He brings to light 
and life, the word of God, and illuminates it for you. He gives new life so that you are regenerated and have a capacity to please and love God. He dwells you so that you will never, ever be away from God's presence. He strengthens you so that the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, the one I always need is like discipline and self-control. God's Spirit, that's a fruit of God's Spirit. We we are a bunch of schlubs in here. Let's admit it. And without God's Spirit, it would be worse. Aren't you thankful that God's Spirit presses you to live out a life of forgiveness and peace and gentleness towards others? Because pull pull that away. And this place is chaotic. This world, can you imagine how messy this world would be without the Spirit of Christ filling his people? He convinces us of sin. Ephesians calls them the seal by which we are sealed until the day of redemption. That is, the Holy Spirit himself secures and anchors you to Christ so that no one can take you away from Christ. And he's the almighty Spirit of God. No one is strong enough to break you away from Christ because the Holy Spirit has sealed you to him. You talk about a promise that's so precious. The down payment on eternal life is the infinitely precious Spirit of God. You know, like when you buy a home and they say, hey, what's your earnest money or what's your down payment to secure this deal? And you're like, I'll give $1,000. If it's that low, it's because you might walk. But when the down payment to secure the promise of your redemption is the infinitely precious spirit of God himself, there is no way God ever walks away from you. He will secure you forever through the spirit. This is promised to all who are far off. So while the gospel is proclaimed to all without distinction, it is only received by those who are called. Look again at the text carefully. Verse 39, the promise is for you, for all your children, and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So who effectively comes to this grace? Those who are called. God's grace is given indiscriminately without distinction. And who effectively comes, who walks to and embraces by faith the ministry of Christ. It is those who are called by God. And only those who are called by God. And so, in an ironic twist, I would suggest to you, Peter is saying you can call on the Lord when he calls on you. Or maybe you could say if, if he calls on you. Now, I realize some people struggle with this theology, and you ask, well, then, how do I know if I'm called? Believe on Jesus Christ, and you'll know. Repent of your sin, and you'll know. He's never turned anyone away who's repented and believed. Well, how do I know? Stop worrying about how you know and believe. Trust in him, and you are called. This isn't given as some mystery that we need to investigate. It's given to declare that from beginning to end, salvation is a gift of God and it is by his grace you are saved. It is to strip us of any arrogance or right in his presence to boast in ourselves. It is to lay all the glory to God and his son and his work through the Holy Spirit to save us. It is that God alone gets glory and you get none. And praise God for that. Can you imagine how arrogant heaven would be if we all patted ourselves on our back? Instead, heaven is a nonstop place of absolute adoration of the one who saved us despite us. What a great God. 
What a glorious thing that he calls some of us because none of us deserve it. Finally, conversion results in joining God's people. It results in joining God's people. Look down with me in verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I get a lot of comfort from that phrase because I would never say it like that. And if I said it like that, I'd probably have 10 people saying, Pastor, we can't save ourselves. I can't believe you said that. I don't think Peter's point is they give themselves salvation. I think Peter's point is you are all doomed to die if you don't have Jesus. See how sweet and good our Savior is and cling to him and thereby be rescued. Cling to Jesus. Trust in him. Turn from sin. Cling to him and you will be saved. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I realize that in churches that don't grow very fast, oftentimes we say that the reason that people leave our church or people, you know, the reason our church isn't blowing up and being stretched at the seams is because we're just faithful to God's word and people can't handle the truth. Let me just remind you, Peter just told them they murdered the Messiah. He wasn't exactly pulling punches. He told them that they needed to be saved from this wicked and crooked generation. He's talking about them to them. You're wicked and corrupt and crooked. Preaching Christ is the means by which people are saved. And there is no other name under heaven whereby people are being saved. And yet, during the preaching of God's word, 3,000 people were being saved. Preaching Christ is amazing at seeing people get saved. 3,000. I'd be terrified. Can you imagine day one of your church plant? You preach, you have 3,000 members to manage. It led to problems, right? All the widows are complaining by chapter 6. Hey, we're not being cared for. I should say all the widows, the Greek widows. But man, what an amazing, powerful working of God. They were added to the church. They were added to them, about 3,000. I want you to look at what this looks like in verses 42 through 47, and then we'll end with this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They're deeply committed people. They're with each other. They're committed to doctrine, that's the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, spiritual encouragement, and partnership, to the breaking of bread. There's debate whether that's the Lord's Supper or meals. Perhaps if we look at Corinthians, it's both. To prayer, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with a glad and generous heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a cool church. Man, they were committed to learning and growing and giving and praying. They were maturing in the faith. They had all things in common. There's a spiritual unity that permeated the hearts of these people as they lived for Jesus Christ. This is what the church looked like. That last line repeats again, and they were added to the church. In our culture, it is common disinterest that pushes people away from church membership. We don't like to be affiliated or accountable or under authority. 
that feeling has nothing in common with the New Testament. It's an independent spirit in our nation that has some nobleness and some ignobleness to it. But be very careful. If you are a disenfranchised Christian, free-floating out there, the Bible would challenge you and your commitments to be free as not Christ-like nor New Testament-like. They challenge you to be added to an assembly, to join it in the pursuit of doctrine and fellowship and the Lord's table and in giving and in growing. If you are a, a free-floating Christian agent out there, I encourage you to consider carefully what the apostle says here, that you would not be orbiting churches and never really part of them, that you would commit yourself and bind yourself to them as imperfect as every church is, and that you would commit by God's grace to being encouraged and encouraging in turn as you join together in the unity under the gospel of God's grace. Okay, so just to remind you, gospel conversion requires the preaching of the gospel. It requires the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It requires biblical repentance, and it produces the fruits of forgiveness. It produces the fruit of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, it moves the person towards unity in the body of Christ. That's what gospel conversion looked like. And we dare not strip any of those away. We, to offer repentance with no forgiveness is terrifying. To see the church express faith in Christ and not receive the promise of the Holy Spirit is to strip away the promises from God himself. To think that you could get saved without the preaching of the gospel is to deny Romans, which says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And just to be clear, that, that does mean sometimes that just at a coffee shop, from memory and clarity of scriptures, theology, you can share the gospel. It is preaching God's word. Okay, I, there's no... It's not that we have to be slavishly tied to quoting the ESV to get someone saved. But you do have to give them God's truth in God's word and call them to faith that's revealed in God's word as biblical gospel-driven faith. Call them to that. Let me end with this final appeal. Peter encourages all preachers in a pattern of preaching the gospel. Verse 40, with many other words he bore witness. See, he couldn't end either. He kept giving many more words. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. I do not mean to be unkind to any, but as you, as you metaphorically pan around the community and look at the homes and the apartments around us, and just in your mind, you think about this. The Bible says that the way to destruction is broad, and the way to eternal life is narrow. And there are few that find it. We live in a dying generation. I mean that eternally. They do not have Jesus Christ. They do not have the hope of salvation. And as much as everyone in Bakersfield loves their trucks, loves their beer, votes Republican, and says they believe in God, Bakersfield is still, generally speaking, a crooked, lost, dying people. And God is saying, don't be like them. Receive life. Turn from sin. Embrace Christ in a personal faith. Trust in him. Live under his lordship. He is God's hope for mankind. And if you don't have him, you don't have hope. So trust in him. Merely saying you believe in God is not enough. Trust in the crucified, 
buried, risen, and coming again Savior and be saved, rescued, forgiven forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence it gives us because sometimes our hearts get shaken. Sometimes the temptation toward sin or the hurt and the sufferings in this present life cause us to loosen our fingers on Christ. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve to love Christ more than we love comfort, more than we love doing our own thing, more than we love the freedom to make choices that are sinful. Lord, I pray that we would love Christ above all others, that we would turn to God from sin, that we would have faith in the Christ who died for our sins and has risen and is living at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our church to be a church that preaches and lives by the pattern we see here in Scripture, that we would constantly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'd call men and women to trust in the Savior and that you might strengthen us and add to our number those who are being saved. Lord, give us lively, hopeful expectation in Jesus Christ that you might strengthen us to walk in pleasing ways toward him. Guard us from the hardness and the deceitfulness of sin that defiles and infects many. Lord, I pray for this church that in years to come, it be marked by a faithful devotion to our Savior, that the gospel and its proclamation would always be a consistent ingredient here at Crossway. Lord, we pray for other sister churches in our community. We frequently remember them in prayer, and we ask that you might strengthen them that likewise they be committed to the pattern that we see here in Acts chapter 2, that they might follow after your word, that the message and the hope of Jesus Christ be faithfully proclaimed from their pulpits, in their Sunday school classes, in their small groups. Lord, we ask that this generation would experience a profound and powerful preaching of Christ and that you might save many. We do not want to be marked out as a generation that was quiet when it became politically unsuitable to talk of Christ and how he saves people from sexual sin and deviancy, how he saves from corruption and wickedness, how he saves us from us. Lord, instead, help our church to preach as the singular hope of all mankind, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he might receive the glory forever and ever. Amen.